good morning, Community Lincoln Park. I mean, this is pretty normal. You get handed palm branches walking into church on a Sunday, uh, have a reading, and get to wave them around a little bit. Uh, this is not normal. We're so glad you're here with us on Palm Sunday. Uh, we are Community Christian Church. We're a family of churches. We have a lot of different locations and expressions, yet our shared mission together is that we really want to help people find their way back to God, even on a Sunday like this. Uh, it's just so beautiful to be able, right here in the heart of Lincoln Park, here in Lincoln Hall, to wave palm branches and kind of do this disruptive thing. Like, who is this Jesus who was entering Jerusalem on this Sunday? Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, or if you're part of our church family, you can go ahead and pull your phones right now. We have this QR code. It is very large above me. Uh, hopefully, if you're even up in the balconies, you can go ahead and scan it. We'd love to know you're here. We'd love to stay connected. Uh, you can give us your email address, phone number, and we'd love to follow up with you and hear how we can connect with you right here in the city. Um, this morning, we wanted to dive straight in and just jump into this moment, into this uh, Bible passage. Uh, I think for the last several years now, community has not necessarily taught about Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, and so we thought this would be a great chance for us to reflect what was happening on this day? In case you haven't noticed, uh, palm branches are kind of weird, right? I think I had probably six or seven conversations this last week of people in our own community saying, what were they even for? Like, why are we waving palm branches around? So we're going to get into all of that. But in order to do so, I wanted to talk about the drama of an entrance. Have you ever noticed how much an entrance can hold all this weight and significance can communicate so much about who a person is. Uh, for any who watched the Super Bowl this last uh, year, I, just to set this up, I, I clearly am an expert on pop culture. That's why I'm here to, uh, to give my opinions about this moment. Uh, if you were to ponder what Rihanna was doing in her glorious entrance, I mean, I think we can see power, prestige, elevation, pregnancy, right? There's a lot of things being communicated in this moment. Uh, let's go to another one that was great, the year 2017. Now this is a little different, right? This is Lady Gaga at the Super Bowl at the halftime show. And I, I don't know about you, I feel a little bit like afraid uh, with this entrance. And I think that was the point. Uh, there's a little bit of terror, wildness, like what's going to happen next. Although I have to say my very favorite Super Bowl entrance of all time was in the year 2015 uh, when the one and only Katy Perry decided to enter on a lion. Now, wow, I think that just says like, I am here, I am loud, I am proud. Uh, something about roaring, right? That was a long time ago, but I know we all remember it. Yet, if we're gonna bring up Katy Perry, I mean, for those of you who care about such things, I have to, of course, mention that many of you waving your palm branches reminded me a bit of Left Shark uh, this morning, <laughs> who just seems a little bit out of place and isn't quite sure what's going on. Um, if pop stars have this kind of an entrance, it's because they know, they want to communicate something about who they are. They know this moment, especially the Super Bowl when all of the United States are watching and many people around the world, they want to tell you how they wish to be taken. Now, this move on the pop star is because they are borrowing from royalty themselves, right? So here is an image uh, from the year 1952 when Queen Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England. If you're interested in such things, and again, I know some of you are not, but some of you here are, uh, this upcoming May, we are going to get the first chance in 80 years to once again experience 
all of the intentionality, the regality of a coronation, everything about this moment was meant to communicate the power, the prestige, and the confidence that England had in their new monarch. Now, I draw attention to this because this morning, we have a chance to consider and reflect upon together a very different type of dramatic entrance. Have you ever asked, hey, we talk about Jesus as king. I mean, what kind of way would King Jesus, the Son of God, the ruler of all, choose to enter into his kingdom? Uh, There's three words that I want to unpack. They sound like the start of a bad joke. Uh, Yet, this Sunday, I want to consider with you donkeys, hosannas, and palm branches, right? Donkeys, hosannas, and palm branches. Okay, so if you could stick with me. Uh, This is just going to be a couple minutes for those of you who like to know the background to things, uh, this is going to be just a slightly deep cut, but this is, this is for those of you in the room, I know there are some who are interested, you want to journey with me, for the rest of you, just, just relax, wave your palm branch around, you know, if you start getting bored, feel free to lift it, just play with it, uh, but let's talk about where, where is this donkey coming from, like why does the donkey matter, where are these hosannas coming from, like what is that about, and why palm branches? So to begin with the donkey, uh, it's very helpful to know There's a passage alluded to in Jenna's reading that comes all the way back from the book of Zechariah, from the prophecy of Zechariah. And actually, if we jump to that prophecy, this is coming from Zechariah chapter 9. And Zechariah is speaking into a moment in in which Israel has returned. They're slowly returning from exile. They're trying to rebuild the temple. This is what's happening in Zechariah. If you remember that moment before Nehemiah comes, Israel's trying to rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem after it's been destroyed. And they're kind of discouraged. Like they, they're not really getting the job done. And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah both write to the people to say, listen, we've got to do this. Like we've got to believe that God is on the move here. We've got to believe that God wants to renew this city. And so in order to encourage them, Zechariah gives this vision of a moment coming when God is going to send the king of Israel back to Jerusalem. And yet, as Zechariah writes this, I, I think as much as it's meant to be a hype piece, you'll notice that there's, there's an intriguing twist that Zechariah portrays about how God would choose to enter back into Jerusalem. This is what Zechariah says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Then Zechariah says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. Now, I think that's hugely encouraging and yet it's almost paradoxical, isn't it? Like if you think about an ancient ruler getting ready to re-enter a city to proclaim the drama and prestige and power of all that this new kingdom and this new reign is going to enact, Zechariah says, when God chooses to do it, it's going to be not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And this donkey is going to come to symbolize that all the weapons of destruction will cease, and now peace has has finally come to all the nations. This helpfully explains why we get this intriguing story from the Gospel of Luke. Again, Jenna was reading this, but I'll let you just look at it with us. This is Luke uh, 19 verse 29 to 30. If you want, you can open up to Luke 19. We're going to largely be working from Luke. Uh, But here in Luke 19, we're told, as Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there 
which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, quite simply, the Lord needs it. Now, just to be clear, Jesus knows, as we're going to see in this whole intriguing moment, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the passage in Zechariah. He knows the prophecy that's been proclaimed. And he now sends his people to do it. The new information that we haven't had before is this weird moment. And I just want to be honest, I got stuck on this one. I'm, I've had to study the Bible a lot. I've done it academically, professionally. And I was like, why did it matter that Jesus like demands a cult, <laughs> like powers up on somebody? The, he sends the disciples to go get it. And then the guy's like, sure. Uh, well, uh, as we look at this next moment, we're told in verse 33, verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner understandably asked them, why are you untying it? <laughs> so you've got a car parked in front of your house and two men walk up to it and begin to open the door. Understandably, your question would be, hey, what are you doing? That's my car, right? Yet uh, these disciples replied to them, the Lord, and in Greek this is the kurios, the, the ruler, the king, needs it. And we're told that this person said, uh, take it, it's yours. Uh, what is happening here, scholars think, in this small moment, is that for just like a mini microcosm, what we're realizing, what we're coming to understand, is that Jesus already is king over Israel. And so when a king asks their subjects, hey, the Lord requires this from you, a true faithful subject who's aware that is their king asking them will immediately respond, of course it is yours. Take it, my Lord. This is your donkey. Uh, this, this is the mystery of the donkey. Uh, this is why the donkey matters. This is kind of the beautiful, strange, like has this ring of history, like this definitely happened. Why else would they include all this detail of like someone giving their donkey to Jesus. And yet you can tell the disciples are kind of pondering it. Like, is, is this guy actually king? <laughs> like this person we've been following this whole time, he, he asks for things and people are giving it to him. Like, what does that mean if this one we've been following is actually king? If that's the donkey, allow me to continue with the Hosanna. Uh, we're told, this is Luke 19, verse 37, when he came near to the place down, uh, where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They're going to then say this in the Gospel of Luke. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then they also proclaimed, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So, uh, I've been wondering, where does this Hosanna come from? Why do we say Hosanna? Why does it matter that the crowds all start to shout this? Well, there's actually this psalm. If you go back into the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, and there's just this line in the psalms uh, that in Hebrew would help to understand uh, what's taking place here. The, long, the psalm begins, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand, joining the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That first line, Lord, save us, in the Hebrew is ho savah, Lord, save us. In the Greek, it's then going to become hosanna. Hosanna, God, save us. Uh, here in Psalm 118, we find uh, the people of Israel celebrating that God's presence has come to Jerusalem. So interestingly, like, 
here in this moment, there's, you can tell there's like lots happening. Jesus is rolling up on a donkey. Now crowds are starting to form, and the crowds intuitively seem to understand. This is the moment to borrow Psalm 118 when God is returning to Jerusalem, and we're going to start to say over and over again, Hosanna, Hosanna, God is saving us. Hosanna, Hosanna, God is saving us. Now this still doesn't explain the palm branches. This is our final mystery. Uh, here are the palm branches. Let me give you one last deep cut. Uh, the palm branches don't appear in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which is just interesting. They talk about leaves. They talk about the people doing it. But John gives us the famous specificity that he says a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. Now, I had assumed this is just like a freak accident of nature, right? Like, why are we using palm branches? Well, two more deep cuts, the first being the book of Maccabees, uh, which... Uh, those of us in the Protestant tradition, we never read this book. This isn't part of our history. But in the Maccabees, uh, there's this moment where the Jewish revolt has allowed the Jewish people to reclaim Jerusalem. And we're told that on the 23rd day of the second month in the 171st year, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of praise, the waving of palm branches, the playing of harps and cymbals and lyres, and the singing of hymns and canticles because a great enemy of Israel had been crushed. These palm branches essentially are signs of political revolt in Israel, which is kind of interesting. Yet underneath this revolt, this moment in the Maccabees, where this becomes sort of part of the lore, like when the people took Jerusalem back over, they cut down these branches to say, yes, we are victorious. The moment has happened. God has saved us. There, there is one last deeper cut than just Maccabees, and that comes in the book of Leviticus when we find that God is giving Israel these celebrations, these moments in which they're meant to really pause and reflect on what happened in Egypt, what happened in the wilderness, and how it was that God brought them out of oppression, brought them out of bondage, and has now brought them into this new land. And one of the key three festivals is called the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, we find in Leviticus the people are instructed on the first day the boughs of goodly trees. Do any of you have goodly trees in your yards? Uh, specifically, branches of palm trees and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. The rest of Leviticus talks about how you take these branches and you create shelters in your yard, if you've ever known Jewish people who celebrate this festival to this day. Uh, they take palm branches to remind them in the shelter that though the shelter is a little bit shaky, right? It's a little bit unsafe. It's not as secure as the homes they've built for themselves. The shelter reminds them that even here under palm branches, they remember God has provided for them. Even when Israel was in the wilderness, God was with them. Palm branches are the sign that the presence of God is here. God will provide and meet your needs. So if we take these images together, the deep cut is over. Uh, we return now to lighter things. Um, if we take this picture together, what do we learn about Jesus on Palm Sunday? Why does it matter that we are reenacting this moment? I have three observations for you that I think are entirely relevant, not only to understanding who Jesus is today, but really understanding who does Jesus hope we might become in light of this entrance that he made into Jerusalem. So first observation is this. Jesus was humble. Jesus was humble. Um, it is inherently striking how humble Jesus chooses to be. Um, I often, growing up, 
never really read the Bible as a book about politics. Uh, I never really thought about the political nature of what Jesus was doing. Yet it's interesting that Jesus, as he goes to enter Jerusalem, is interacting with these competing, swirling interests of politics that were taking place in his day. So in Jesus' time, there were some, the Pharisees especially, who thought that right behavior and restoring God's law perfectly was the only hope Israel had to become the people they were meant to be again. Then over here, there were others, very contrasted, very different, who as zealots thought that revolution was the only hope. Like they needed to burn everything to the ground. They needed to chuck Rome out. And then in this moment with the right ruler, they could finally just enact this new vision of what Israel was meant to be. Then there were plenty of those over here that we also meet throughout the Gospels who mostly just wanted to keep the status order the same, right? They were like kind of okay with how the cards had fallen and some of them were Jewish and some of them were Roman, but they were normally the ones who were in charge who were like, let's just, let's just keep this thing going because right now it's working for me. And into this moment, Jesus does a profoundly political act, which is that he chooses to enter Jerusalem with all the signs that he was, in fact, already Jerusalem's king. Yet there, at the center of this moment, is a donkey, which profoundly displays, if we pull Zechariah back up on the screen, that though he is righteous and victorious, he is undeniably humble. Have you ever ridden a donkey before? These are embarrassing, lowly, bumpy animals. <laughs> no one enjoys the ride on a donkey. No one can get anywhere fast on a donkey. In fact, if you were in any sort of like war-like scenario uh, where there was danger, you did not want to be on a donkey because you could probably get off and run faster than the donkey would take you wherever you needed to go. Yet here Jesus tells us when he comes, he comes lowly and humble. Now, I, I just can't help but reflect with you as a church, lean into this for a moment. We have an election coming up in our city. We are surrounded, surrounded by the divisiveness of politics in America today. And I know, I know how deeply many of you are involved in politics. I know how, how deeply many of you care. I respect for so many of you the values and the energy that you bring to the political lives and needs of our city. And that is so good. But here on Palm Sunday, I think it's, it's necessary as we reflect on who Jesus was that I remind you pastorally, do not allow the pride of politics to cut you off from the humility of Jesus as your true king. I think in this moment, what Jesus reminds us is that though politics tries to draw out this certainty, this rightness, that like if just your party could get in power, then everything would be set right. What Jesus reminds us is he ultimately is the only one who is truly our king, and he ultimately, in order to enact his power, came humble and small. Can you imagine how much our politics would benefit on all sides of the aisle if we could actually take seriously the humility of Jesus and we could remember that he is, in fact, our true king. If that's observation number one, Jesus was humble. I want to take you to observation number two, that Jesus wept. Now, I haven't covered this part yet of the story, uh, but Jenna mentioned it. 
already, this intriguingly, in the moment of, of ultimate grandeur, ultimate glory. This is, in fact, the closest Jesus will ever come in his lifetime to being recognized publicly for what he truly was, the king of Israel. In this moment, Jesus, instead of celebrating with the crowds, instead of uh, you know, going up and to the right and joining in the festivities and throngs, we are told in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to choose instead to weep, to weep over Jerusalem. It says in verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. All week I've just been wondering, what is the significance that in this moment of celebration, in this moment of kingly grandeur, Jesus not only chooses to come humble, but he chooses to weep. Um, as I've been thinking about tears in this moment of weeping, like if you sit with somebody who starts to cry, it actually is very uncomfortable, isn't it? Like tears are, are kind of vulnerable, just like a, a donkey is kind of vulnerable. Uh, tears expose your feelings to another. Like you may be feeling things inside, but I don't know if you're just sitting there with me. But if you start to cry, you reveal how much you actually care about whatever it is that you're crying over. These tears of Jesus reveal that he cares not only about those who are getting it right, not only about those who are going to recognize and see him as their Lord and as their king and who in this moment are celebrating correctly, but Jesus cares about those who aren't getting it. Jesus cares about those who are doubting, those who are ignoring, those who are self-interested, those who are proud. Jesus cares about the city that is going to be broken very soon. Uh, within a generation, Jerusalem by the year 70 AD is actually going to be invaded by Rome and destroyed. Tons of people are going to be killed. It's going to be this horrific political mess. And Jesus pauses in this moment of glory to weep, to just weep in vulnerability over the brokenness that is being experienced and that is even being missed in this moment in Jerusalem. Um, th this past week, as I'm sure all of you are aware, uh, more terrible things have happened in our country. There was yet another shooting at another school, this one Covenant Presbyterian down in Tennessee. And as I'm sure most of you have been following the news, I mean, there were three young children, nine years old, who were all killed, and then there were three adults as well. Um, I don't know about you, but I, to be totally honest with you, I could not engage this story <laughs> this last week. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't really track with it much. Like, I knew I was aware, I saw the headlines, I was tracking, I could understand it as information, but there's just been so many terrible things that have happened, <laughs> even in this last year, that I was like, wow, all right, you know, that's, that's terrible. All right, keep moving. Let's keep moving on. Yet this last week, uh, I have the gift of being married to my wife, who was doing the reading there, Jenna, and uh, she and I were grabbing coffee. Uh, we were actually at a Starbucks, just sitting there before work. We're connecting. We started talking about the news. And the more that Jenna started talking, I could start to see she'd actually done quite a bit of reading on this story. And as Jenna was just sort of talking and talking and talking about it, all of a sudden, she was just getting more and more invested and more and more emotional as she was considering like, what it meant that this happened. And all of a sudden, she starts to cry. And I will confess to you, 
I was super uncomfortable. Like, we were in Starbucks. I was kind of, I was the one looking around. If any of you are married or friends that start to cry in public, you're like, okay, okay, okay. Let's just like, you know, what do we need? What's going on? I, I lost, somehow I didn't follow. Uh, and as I was just leaning in to be like, oh, what's going on? I, I don't understand. You know, like, wow, you're crying. I didn't know you, you were so connected to this. Jenna just had this moment where she looked at me and she was like, you know, I would just like to think that if this happened to me, somebody would care enough to linger over who I was and to weep, to weep at just the pain and the horror and the brokenness that this could occur. I think what's so incredible here about Jesus' tears as he enters Jerusalem is that as much as Jesus was humble, as much as this is a political moment, Jesus takes the time to weep. He cares, like he deeply deeply cares, not just about those who are getting it, but about those who are not. And for you this morning, I, I just can't help but wonder. I know there's lots of stories here of people who have gone through incredibly tragic things. I know there are many people here who've had tough roads with the church. You've had tough roads with religion. You've had tough roads with family. Maybe even now you're going through something incredibly challenging. Or, or maybe you're like fully in the fight around the brokenness and injustices taking place in our world. And I think this morning, I just want to encourage you. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps with you. Jesus weeps for you. J Jesus cares enough to weep. If that are two of the major signs that Jesus offers us, I have one last observation for you this morning of why Palm Sunday matters, and that is that Jesus beautifully is willing to face conflict, even conflict on our behalf to accomplish peace. Uh, if, if the donkey and if Jesus' tears are significant, I mean, there's one last sort of big-picture observation that's so easy to miss— Jesus gets on this donkey, goes through these motions, both signaling his kingship and then pausing to weep, knowing that his crucifixion is coming. In fact, most scholars think that between this moment and Jesus choosing to cleanse the temple sometime in the next couple of days, uh, those two signs, more than anything else, were the reason why the leaders, the religious leaders in Jerusalem said, this is it, we've got to kill him. Like, this isn't going well. Jesus knows this moment will be the sign that will begin to enact the horrific suffering and death that he's about to undergo. In fact, Luke is kind of signaling all of this. If you go back a chapter in Luke, Luke 18, 31 to 33, Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside and he tells them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written, in the, written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him, and they will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knows what's coming for him, and yet he still chooses to face into this conflict anyways. It, it's been causing me to reflect on this book that's made the rounds. Perhaps some of you have seen it. Uh, it's this sort of cult classic from the 1990s by a psychologist named Edwin Friedman. It's called A Failure of Nerve, Failure of Nerve, it's been going around for a bit now, and uh, probably five years ago I first got introduced to this book. And Friedman uh, worked in Washington, D.C. He was a counselor, so he would work with families. He did a lot of work with family systems, but his work was so compelling he started being uh, invited to, con to collaborate and consult on organizations, because he said, hey, the same work I'm doing with families is kind of 
same dramas and mess that I'm seeing take place in different organizations. And then as he was working with organizations in D.C., eventually, uh, he got roped into politics and he began working with both political parties and presidents and all kinds of things. So incredibly influential, uh, incredibly insightful. Yet yeah, this is Friedman's main observation. He observes that every family, every organization, even every country is uh, sort of negotiated by exchanges of anxiety. So he says, everybody gets really anxious, right? In families, people get anxious. Uh, with my kids, I have toddlers right now, they just get hungry, they get bored, they like, they want to move, they want to play, they want to watch TV. Like, you never know what anxiety is going to hit you. And in your organization, it's like people want raises, people want more status, people want promotions, people want more work, people want less work. And as these anxieties are swirling, uh, Friedman says they're kind of like a hostage negotiation, <laughs> right? That they're kind of like this moment where uh, everyone's anxieties are making demands and you're constantly being presented with this, this impulse to just give in to the demands. It's like, hey, you need it, you want it, like, let me just give it to you because I am stressed out by your anxieties. Yeah, Friedman's proposal in A Failure of Nerve is that the true gift that a leader or a family member or a boss or a supervisor or a president could give to a people is actually to hold on to courage, to face all of the anxieties, to like weather them uh, as the anxieties are coming, and then to, to still chart forward. No, this is what we need. This is where we're going. Uh, this, is, this is a greater vision of what we are trying to accomplish. I cannot give in to your demands. Uh, if that resonates or helps you, I mean, I, I'm on the side of things that I tend to be more eager to please. I tend to want to help people. I tend to want people to like me. And so for me, this was a revolutionary call. Like, what if I stopped giving in to people's demands? And what if instead I asked, like, what is the good that I actually have that people actually need? Yet you can see where I'm going with this, uh, that as Friedman is talking, uh, even though he is a secular Jewish psychologist, at one point he observes, you know, it's fascinating that Christians worship this person named Jesus uh, because you really see in this moment, like here on Palm Sunday, Jesus sees the conflict that is coming. He feels the anxieties that are washing over him, the anxieties and pressures of the people around him. And yet Jesus sees a far greater objective. Ultimately, Jesus sees peace. He knows that if he can just face this conflict, if he can endure through the pressures of anxiety, then what he can ultimately give is going to be so much better than even what these crowds are chanting and hoping and demanding from him. If I were to reflect uh, with you this morning on why any of this matters in the drama of an entrance, I would suggest that as Jesus was humble, we too are called to be humble. We can follow Jesus in lowliness. We can trust the donkeys that you and I are given to ride upon uh, as we attempt to navigate all of the pressures and power around us. Yet if Jesus was humble, Jesus also wept. You want to know one of the best ways to keep your humility is if you too can weep, you can feel with, you can keep entering into the pain, the brokenness, you can care enough to shed your tears. Yet finally, uh, I, I do think Jesus is, is modeling something for us that is actually entirely practical for each of our lives. 
In this scene, in this moment, as Jesus sits and faces Jerusalem, he faces anxiety, which I know many of us suffer from. He faces threat. He faces conflict, which for some of us is so overwhelming, and yet Jesus holds as he faces it, and he says, I know there is something greater that could be accomplished here. My prayer for you this morning is that if you find yourself feeling those anxieties, what does it mean to follow Jesus, to actually trust Jesus, to get behind him and to walk with him into Jerusalem, into the peace that he wants to invite you into? Um, This week, we have the opportunity not to end the story here, but to continue the story. Uh, On Thursday night, we're going to gather over at New Life Lakeview at 6 p.m. It's going to be a beautiful Maundy Thursday service in which we're going to remember this last night that Jesus has with his disciples. And then on Friday, if you've never done one of these before, we're going to have a Zoom Stations of the Cross. So if you haven't given us your email yet, make sure you connect with us over email. We'll send you the link for this. Uh, the Stations of the Cross is just a chance for us to move with the Bible through these moments that Jesus follows there as he's carrying his cross to his crucifixion. Uh, but finally, next Sunday, the story is not yet over. In fact, the only strange thing about Palm Sunday is that we're kind of caught here in this moment in the in-between, aren't we? Like we see this glimpse as we're about to sing again of the victory and of the king that we have a chance to follow. And yet, even as we wave these branches, we're sort of questioned as we remember. Not everyone there got who this Jesus was and what he intended to bring. So let me pray over us. Lord, as we enter into this week, teach us to walk with your Son. Teach us your humility. Lord, may you shape how we weep. And yet, Lord, would you give us courage, courage to follow your footsteps into Jerusalem, to face the conflicts in our own lives, and to together seek your peace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.